Our scripture reading today is taken from Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord.
sovereign Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the reminder in it of how you view people, how you view us. We think of what you say in your word in the book of Hebrews, that since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and Lord, we see in this text this morning a few of those many innumerable witnesses, people who have gone before us and walked with you, and we thank you for their lives, but you say in Hebrews that since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let, we, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we consider these figures here in this genealogy, that you would spur us on to endurance all the more in the race that you have given to us, the, the days in which you have given to us. Lord, may we use them in a way that honors you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So we come this morning to everybody's favorite passage in the book of Genesis, a genealogy. And uh, it's, a, it's a recording of a family history. This is uh, the family of Adam that is recorded for us, his descendants that come from there. Now you hear the genealogy and, and don't start running for the doors. There's much here that we can learn. We see at the beginning, it starts a new section in the book of Genesis. It starts a new, uh, a new uh, uh, time period for us. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. We saw in chapter two that this phrase showed up again. It's the Toledot formula, meaning these are the generations of. Shows up all throughout the book of Genesis to give us a clue into the different sections of the book. So we're starting a new section here. These are the, this is the family history of Adam. These are the people that are coming from Adam, the book of the generations of Adam. And we see this is a family history. The people here surely enjoyed their family, was proud of their family, and so too are we. And we think about their, their family gatherings, and we too have family gatherings. And I wanna make one known to you Next Sunday, we're gonna have a family gathering as a church. That happens every Sunday morning. We, always, we gather together every Sunday morning as a church family. But next Sunday at five o'clock in the afternoon, we'll have a family gathering with communion. This will be happening in the gym at five o'clock. We'd love to see you there. Uh, please sign up online or out in the circle at Grace Connect so that we have a number for food. But we wanna see you there. This is, this is the time where our church family gathers together and celebrates. And what we do at communion, we celebrate two things. First, we celebrate our uh, union with Christ, remembering who he is and what he has done for us at the cross. But there's another dimension to it, and it's that we celebrate our union with one another as a church that we are built together upon the foundation, the firm foundation of Christ and what he has done. That is the basis for our unity as a church family and we get to celebrate that next Sunday. So I hope to see you there for that. That's one example of a family gathering that we have and you surely think they would have had many family gatherings as well. There would have been times where this family enjoys being together and certainly they enjoyed thinking back about their ancestors. Now, one of the reasons I like uh, walking through books of the Bible like we're doing here in Genesis is because you have to deal with passages like this. How often would you hear Genesis chapter five taught if not for walking through the book of Genesis and coming to this passage and saying, okay, what does the Lord have to teach us here? What can we possibly learn from this? We know in 2 Timothy, God says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is his word. This entire thing is his word. What, we, what Paul just read for you here is the word of God. But he also goes on, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 
All scripture, everything in this book is profitable for you and I to grow in our walk with Christ, to grow more like Christ, and to be equipped for all good works that he has prepared for us. And you say, okay, how does a genealogy do that? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. How does this genealogy actually profit us? We're gonna see several observations from the text and some of them will be aimed at trying to help us understand why is it in here and some of it will be aimed at helping us understand why does it matter to us? Those are the two aims this morning. Why is this in here and why does this matter? This is the book of the generations of Adam and the first element we see here for us is that family matters. We see it's evident that family matters is a text of a family resemblance. We see this is borne out. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Man there, referring to the totality of mankind, human beings. We are reminded right from the start of this passage, a new section in the book of Genesis, we are reminded of the high calling, the high value that the Lord God has placed upon every single human life. That when he made man, male and female, he made them in his image with worthy of value and love and respect and dignity. And it is appropriate that it is repeated here because you think about what has just happened in chapter four. In chapter four, we have just seen Cain rising up and killing his brother Abel. And then we see one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, boasting about his own murderous rage. And we see repeatedly, consistently throughout the, the, the chapter four, human life is being devalued. Human life is being stepped upon. Human life is being taken as a, as a means of our own self-advancement and self-preservation and self-fulfillment in our sin. And so we see the devaluing of human life. And so at the beginning of chapter five, it is a reminder, remember God made man in his image. We'll see later in chapter nine about how this is the reason for the pro prohibition God gives against murder. But we don't need that here because all that needs to be said is, remember that brother or sister, that person around you that you see, they are made in God's image. So how should you treat them then? You don't treat them like Cain treated Abel. You don't treat them like Lamech treated these others. You treat them as worthy of respect. You value them no matter what else they have done because they bear the stamp of the sovereign creator of the universe. We're reminded of that right here after what we have already seen. And we see in verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So now we have a child who was born in Adam's image. This does not mean that Seth was not made in God's image. Seth still bears the image of God. It is not erased at the fall, though it is certainly defaced, it's marred. It's sometimes hard to recognize, sometimes hard to see, but it's still there. This doesn't mean that, that, well, Adam was made in God's image, but now Seth's made in Adam's image. This is referring to Adam is now passing down this lineage throughout the generations. It was not said of Cain or Abel, this statement here. It's said of Seth. Because Seth is the one who resembles his father. Seth is the one through whom the promise will continue to come. Born in Adam's image, in his likeness. And what we see going on throughout this chapter then is at its most basic level, this genealogy is a family history, a family record to tell you about who your grandparents were, who your great, great, great grandparents were for Israel to remember. 
You and I do the same thing. If you ever kept track of a family tree or tried to look back and see, okay, where did I come from and, 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 and how, how did we get here and is there anyone significant in my family's tree? And you know, we ask all sorts of questions and we see all these things. And maybe you even thought back about family on Friday. It was Veterans Day. And we honor and celebrate all those who have served in our armed forces and we, we rightly recognize them and value them and honor them. And so maybe you thought back to that family member who you know, man, they gave so much and they served and they, 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 they exerted such effort and served in these ways. And so we, we honor them and value them. And so you, we love thinking about our family. We love thinking about our family history. We love thinking about who they are and we love telling stories about what they have done. And so we, we cling to these things and so too does Israel. That's why it's recorded here for us. It's a family history to tell them where they came from. But you'll notice that of the, of the, the, the figures who play some prominence here, there's, there's really 10 men who show up in this text of prominence, and we know very, very little about most of them. We tend to jump right to, okay, well, you got Adam and you got uh, maybe, maybe Enoch and maybe uh, Noah. Okay, we jump to those guys and, oh, you know what? Maybe let's throw Methuselah in there too because he's the answer to the favorite Bible trivia question. Who's the oldest guy in the Bible? Methuselah, we got it, right? So, okay, we know Methuselah too, but we don't really know these guys. We don't know much about them. They don't really say much about them in the text and they say even less about them throughout the rest of scripture. There is relatively nothing that we know about them except for one thing. One thing in this passage that we know, they had a child. They had a son. For most of these men, that's the only thing we know about them. It's really the only thing. We know how long they lived and we know that they had a son who carried on the line. And I think there's an interesting observation for us in that it may be that the most significant thing that you do in your life is raise your children. Now, I know there are some in here who wish they were married. I know there are some who are married who wish they had kids. I know there are some who have kids who wish they had more kids. I get all that. But if the Lord has given to you the gift of children, it may well be that the most significant task that he is calling you to is to raise them in a way that honors the Lord and loves them. What happens with these men, the only thing we know about them, the only thing of significance the Bible actually tells us about them is that they had a child. And it seems that their children walked with the Lord throughout the generations. Your children are not an obstacle to your career advancement. They're not the thing standing in the way of your, you actually fulfilling your life, actually living your life, actually having the joy that, that you think life brings. They're not, they're not the obstacle standing in the way of those things. They actually are the mission that God has given you, the people that God has entrusted to you to love and shepherd and care for. And I think we see that through the relative anonymity of these men. We see that their significant accomplishments came through their children. Parents, you may be doing many great things at your work. You may be quite successful. You may make a lot of money to provide and care for them. You may be rising through the ranks and getting all sorts of accolades and praise and accomplishments. But don't forget the supreme responsibility the Lord has entrusted to you with your children to love them, nurture them, care for them, and point them to Christ. And we see in our text that God is preserving his line throughout the generations. God is preserving the lineage of the Messiah. The Messiah will come from Seth's line, and we see he is preserving that throughout the ages. And how does he do so? From parents to children, and from those children to their children from those children to their children, and so on and so forth. It seems to be that the way God preserves his line is most prominently through parents passing it on to their 
kids. You think about the context of this passage we saw in chapter four, the rebellion of Lamech and his line. We have seen the descent into sin such that now sin is not just tolerated, not just uh, something we do but try to hide, but something that we celebrate and boast about. And so we've seen that descent into sin in chapter four. And then we jump to chapter six and we see the beginning of chapter six as every intention of the thoughts of man was only evil continually. We see this descent into wickedness, this descent into sinfulness spiraling more and more into the depths of depravity. And yet we see here in chapter five what looks like a line that continues to remain faithful to the Lord. We saw the end of chapter four, Seth had a son, Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It seems that amidst the darkness that is rising around them, as the culture they lived in continued to plunge deeper into sin, God preserves for himself a people. God's preserving a remnant. And he does so, it seems, most prominently from parents passing it down to their children. The Bible says to train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We know that's not a hard, fast promise and not a universal truth because to Adam and Eve was born both Cain and Seth, one who rebels and one who obeys. And yet, it seems to be a wise principle that is typically the way in which God works. Because you look at it, Cain's lineage does appear to resemble Cain. And Seth's lineage does appear to resemble Seth. So parents, again, there is no greater responsibility that you have than to train up your child in the way of the Lord, to entrust them to him, to teach them the truths of God's word, and to point them to Christ in all that you say and all that you do. The normative way that God uses to preserve for himself a remnant amidst a broken world is parents proclaiming the gospel to their children. Let's not belittle that task or think too lightly of it. But know that God does preserve a people. He does not let his line, he does not let the Messiah's line die out. And in his sovereign decree of election, he has has saved for himself a people. And he will see it too, those people are brought to him in full forever. No matter how sinful the world becomes and no matter how victorious Satan does appear, God's people will continue proclaiming light into the darkness Seems at this time that people who were following God were far outnumbered by those around them who were not following God, and yet God continued to preserve them. That's why the Lord Jesus declares, we read it earlier, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, come what may, the church of Jesus Christ will endure, will remain, will persevere. No matter how sinful the culture around us looks, no matter how much we might think, well, we're outnumbered, believers here are outnumbered, no matter how much we might think Satan's getting some victories here, Jesus Christ continues to build his church, continues to preserve a remnant, and that line, the Messiah's line, will not be broken. Whether, you, whether you're physically passing down to your children or whether you are coming to him by faith, it's the same thing. You're grafted in, every single one of us, whether you have children or not, born in the image of God, saved by faith in the Messiah. He will preserve that line. And friends, do you think about how, do you think about how tiny of a God it seems that we have when we talk about uh, like the hope of our country, the hope of Christianity in our country depends upon who gets elected in Washington. Like he needs us, like he needs our help and our favorable laws and our, the right rulers in order to make a great name for himself in this country. Friends, that is not the case. An American political election is not going to stop God's sovereign decree of election for his people. But that will remain and will continue on for all the ages. 
until Christ comes back to bring us to himself and we will live with him in full. God preserves a remnant and it seems that this is passed down from father to son as the normative way it happens. There is another implication from this relative anonymity of these men here that I want, want us to notice too. Because again, there are 10 names mentioned and we don't know much about any of them. Or very, few, or very few of them we know much about. Adam, Noah, Enoch. What about Mahalalel? You say, well, Josh, I can hardly pronounce these names. What can we learn from them? What about Canaan? What about Jared? It's not talking about that commercial you see. It's talking about this figure in the Bible. They get very little attention here. We don't know who they were. We don't know what they did. And this opens up to us one of the sobering realities of life that some, maybe some of you have been there. You wonder, well, is anything I'm doing really gonna make that much of a difference? Am I gonna really have any sort of lasting impact? When I'm gone, are people even gonna remember me? It's one of the sobering aspects of life that we know our life is like a vapor and then it's gone. And will people remember us afterward? We don't remember much about these men. We don't know much about what they did. But it is significant that they're included here because it clues us in on the fact that God sees them and God knows them, just like God sees and God knows you. They're not random placements here. These are people, people who are known by God and loved by God. One commentator writes this. He says uh, about the, these, these names, this genealogy being included here. He says, if we were writing this book, we would probably just leave the names out but God does not. And it is because he is far more interested in people than we are. See, we tend to want to just skip over the list of names. We want to just kind of ignore them and say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Those people don't really matter to me, but praise God, they matter to God. Praise God, they mean something to him. That their inclusion here clues us in on the fact that God sees them, God knows them, God cares for them. And it's a reminder to you and I that no matter what comes in our life, no matter how we may answer those questions about, well, will I really be remembered? A life that is lived to God's glory will never be in vain. He sees you, he knows you, he cares for you, he loves you. And so you might feel invisible right now. You might feel like nobody sees you, nobody cares for you, nobody understands you, nobody really appreciates you. He said, my boss certainly doesn't see what I'm doing. He said, my husband certainly doesn't appreciate my efforts. And no matter what comes, you feel alone. And maybe you actually feel most alone when you're in a large group of people, because even though you're surrounded by people, you realize I'm really known by none of them. You feel alone, overlooked, forgotten, invisible, but the inclusion of genealogies in the Bible is good news for you that God doesn't overlook, but he sees and knows and cares. You know those people that when you're talking to them, it feels like they've always kind of got one eye on the horizon looking for someone else who's coming in the door. Like, okay, I'm gonna talk to you, but only so long as there's no one more significant or important that could give me a little bit more than, than you do. And then I'm heading over there to talk to them. You know those people who are always, always seems they're kind of looking for someone else, someone who can give them a little bit more. They wanna to talk to the most powerful person in the room. God's not like that. He needs nothing from us anyway. There's nothing we can bring them anyway. There's nothing, there's nothing that attracts 
uh, makes us attractive to God because of what we do or who we are. But God is the one who sees exactly who you are. He knows you, he cares for you, and he listens to you when you cry out to him. These people included here are not random afterthoughts in the story. They are people who are seen by God. And this extends not just to their names here, but we also see something else about them, and it's how long they lived. We see the years of their life. We see how long they lived here on the earth. And sometimes we think, just like we think that the names included here are random, we think the years included here are relatively random. But they're not. The inclusion of the years tells us God has determined their days just like he has determined ours. He knows them. Life is not random. The number of your days is not random. All of it is under the sovereign purpose of a loving creator. God determined that Mahalalel should live precisely as long as he did, 895 years, and then died. God determined that. It wasn't random. God determined that Noah would live during the time of the flood where God's wrath was poured out upon mankind. God determined that. It wasn't random. And God determined that you and I should live in Ashland, Ohio in the year 2022. God determined that. It wasn't random. He has you here for a time and a place and a purpose. And yet how often do we act like it is just kind of random? It doesn't really matter. We, we talk about this and we bemoan the fact that we were born in this day and age and we kind of wish we were born in another age where things weren't like this. Or maybe we talk about, why well, I want to get back to the way things were sometime back there in the past where we think it was a lot better then. But friends, God has you here for a purpose right now. He did not make a mistake in where he has you. He did not make a mistake in the time you were born, the years that you live. And sometimes we think about this most pertinently with our children where we say, well, I just, you know, I can't believe it. I, I fear for them. They're born into this kind of sinful world and all these things going on, all these things swirling. Well, friends, God intended in his sovereign purposes that they would be born right now for a reason. It's not random. It's not incidental. It's his divine decree. You know, I think here of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Frodo is deemed to be the ring bearer. The one ring is corrupting. It's a burden that Frodo alone can bear. And even while he bears it, it tears him apart and draws him all the closer to darkness. And at one moment of raw honesty, Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish the ring had never come to me. And I wish none of this had happened. And to that, Gandalf responds, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. God has determined your years. God has determined your days. God has determined when you live. That's not for us to decide. What is up for us to decide is how we live right now with the days he has given to us. Will we live them to sinful rebellion like Lamech or will we live them in righteousness and holiness like Seth and Enoch and these people in this line? What will we do with the days that are given to us? These days are short. These days are short and that might not seem as evident in a passage like this where they don't look that short to us. These... Uh, these are actual lifetimes. There's no reason to think that when the Bible gives us these years, it wasn't actual years. Uh, so when it says Adam lived 930 years, how long did Adam live? 930 years. These are actual years, actual lifespans, actual times. You say, well, well why'd they live so long then? And we don't now. Well, there's a lot of 
reasons for that. Uh, we can't get into all of them this morning. I think one of the reasons is how things have changed in the world after the flood. After the flood, those same length of years is uh, not found. Still longer than we find today, but not 900 years. Um, it's kind of like Yoda says, when 900 years old you reach, look as good you will not, right? So we think about uh, all that. And so uh, one, one thing is after the flood, things change. Another reason is that uh, I think the further away we get from Eden, the more we see the, the effects of it wear out. And for example, in Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. And he says that there's coming a time where someone will die at the age of 100 and will have died a child. So it seems that in the presence of God, there is longer lifespan. So, so it's, it's probable that the flood changes things. It's probable that the further away from Eden we get, the more we see the effects spreading. But I also think that in the passage, it is a reminder to us that death is certain for us all, no matter how long we live. Ours is an age of trying to figure out ways in which we can, pro, or we can, we can keep death away and prolong our life as much as we possibly can. There's nothing wrong with that motive. But what's, what's clued in for us in this passage is that maybe, let's say you could figure out a way to live as long as Methuselah, 969 years. What happens to him? He died. If you could figure out how to live for a millennia, you still would not be able to attain eternal life, immortality that way. No matter how long you live, death is a certainty. You think about what might have happened Right? We, we don't know for sure, but I think about what might have happened for Adam and Eve after they sinned. So God tells them, when you sin, you will surely die. Okay, so death is now certain for them. They leave the Garden of Eden, and what happens? Cain kills Abel. Now they know what death is. Now they've been confronted with it, and it's horrible. But then think about it. Then Adam celebrates his 200th birthday, and then his 300th birthday, and then his 400th birthday, and then his 500th birthday and then his 600th birthday, so on and so forth. And it seems everybody at that time kind of lived similar. So we don't know how much death they were exposed to, but it's possible that perhaps they started thinking, hey, you know what? Unless we're murdered, we're gonna just kind of keep living. That's not that bad of a deal. Unless Cain kills Abel, unless we're murdered, we're just gonna keep living. And then what happens to Adam? He dies. Death is a certainty for all men. There's no way of escaping it by prolonging our life. And so as we see the lifespan shorter now, for us, we still learn much the same thing. Whether our life is 90 years or 900 years, we still learn about the futility of life. Our, our days are like a vapor and then are gone. But death is a certainty. Piper writes this, in other words, human mortality and the shortness of life cries out to the world, your life is a vapor. Your life is a vapor. Take hold of what lasts. Take hold of God. Take hold of Christ. Take hold of the gospel. God's point to the world and the brevity of life is that a trumpet blast be sounded from every funeral, from millions upon millions of funerals. Look away, look away from this mortal life. Look away from this fallen world of sin and corruption and futility. Look for your portion and your hope and your treasure outside of this world. Look to God, look to Christ, look to the gospel. That's the point of mortality. That's what this text is screaming at us. You will not find eternal life this way. It's only found outside of you. 
It's only found in Christ, not in this, because the text makes it very clear we will die. You see the familiar refrain that runs all throughout it. Verse five, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 and he died. Verse eight, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Verse 11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Verse 20, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Verse 27, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Verse 31, thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. See that over and over and over again? And he died. Death has become a normal part of life. It's an unnatural part of life, but normal. It's unnatural because that's not the way it was supposed to be. Death is a foreign intruder into the God's created design. Only came about as a result of man's rebellion and not God's intention with the world. It is unnatural. God made a world without death, but as Satan smuggled rebellion into the sacred temple of Eden and deceived Adam and Eve and enticed them by looking and saying, well, this must be good. Well, hiding inside of the Trojan horse that the devil smuggled in was death. And it has come for all men. What was unnatural and remains unnatural has become normal. And we see in the coming weeks how the flood will bring widespread death upon the world. All of mankind, except for one family, will be wiped out. And none of these figures in this passage, besides Noah, would survive that flood. None of them would live longer than that. Let's do a little bit of math. You say, first a genealogy, and now math. This deal's getting worse all the time. No, this is gonna be simple math, right? Um, start with Methuselah. So back up, verse, uh, let's see, let's start with verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Okay, 187. Now jump down to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. So now add 187 to 182, and you get, uh, what, 369. Okay, so that's, that's from the time of Methuselah's birth to the time of Noah's birth. Now, chapter six tells us Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So add 600 to that, and you get 969 years. Now look back at verse 27. Thus all the days of Methuselah were how long? 969 years, and he died. In other words, Methuselah died in the same year as the flood. Lamech died five years prior to that. Methuselah died the same year of it. Does that mean he died in the flood? We don't know. I think probably not. But he did die in the same year. And no matter what, you trace any of these lineages, any of these years, none of them will survive past that. Except for one, Noah. And his death is recorded for us a few chapters later. There is no way of getting out of life alive. Death comes for us all. You say, well, what are the unavoidable realities? Death and taxes, right? Well, you can avoid taxes far better than you can avoid death. You may go to jail for it, but you can still try to avoid it. Romans 5, though, says that, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what we see here in this genealogy is the spread of death, a reminder of the curse of sin, a reminder 
of the devastation that comes from our rebellion. Except for there's one guy in the text that's a little different. It's Enoch. It's a jarring contrast. We've, we've gotten used to the refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So we come then to look at Enoch in verse 23, and we start the same way as the others. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, one year for every day of our calendar year. Now we expect what comes right after that, because we've, we've seen that already. We say, okay, here we go, and he died. But that's not what it says. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. See, wait, 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 this guy didn't die. Something different happened here. Death has spread to all men. And then it says, well, Enoch didn't die. He walked with God and God took him. What happened here? Something's different. There's hope. There's hope that maybe death does not have the final word. Maybe death does not have the last say. There is hope that springs forth from the text. And how did how'd this hope come about? Enoch walked with God. He walked with God. So what does this look like? What does Enoch's walk with God look like? Well, when scripture refers to walking, it refers to your way of life, how you live, how you act, how you conduct yourself, how you interact with other people. It's kind of the way that you live. So Enoch's life was one of honoring the Lord. It's the language applied to him and applied to Noah later on. He walked with God. It's a way that you would maybe walk with someone else. You'd go on a hike on a beautiful, chilly day and you'd go on a hike and you'd walk with them. Or you think about someone who maybe, maybe in the morning you get together with your neighbor and you go on a walk around the neighborhood. Now, why do you do that? Okay, yes, it's exercise, but you know what? You can exercise without people around you. Why do you go on a walk with them? Because you enjoy being with them. You enjoy their company. You enjoy the conversation that comes up. You like talking with them. You like being with them. And so picture Enoch here, enjoying the presence of God, enjoying the company of God, enjoying the conversations with God. Waking up in the morning and saying, I can't wait to see what today holds with God. Getting ready to go on a walk. He just said, I can't wait to just talk with God and walk with God. Think about that. It's delighting in his presence, enjoying being with God, enjoying him. And so to walk with God means to worship God, love God, know God, follow God, and live all for God's glory. That's what Enoch did. We learn another thing about Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11. He shows up in that passage of the commended Old Testament saints. Hebrews 11 tells us this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was committed as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So now we get an important clarification. What does Enoch's walk with God look like? It was by faith. Nobody can please God apart from faith. Not by the things that you do, not by the work that you do, not by any of these things, not by being a better person, not by getting your life together. You can't please God that way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So how did Enoch walk with him? By faith. By faith that was pleasing to the Lord. By faith that was accepted in his sight. We learn a third thing about Enoch from the book of Jude. Not only did Enoch walk with God, not only did Enoch please God by his faith, but Enoch also proclaimed to those around him that a judgment was coming. Jude writes this, it was also about these people, these 
sinful people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of, their, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Get the sense of ungodliness and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch is proclaiming in his day that there is a judgment coming. God will pour out his wrath towards sin. But the second dimension is not just that there's a judgment coming, but that this judgment is coming toward all sinners, toward all who rebel against him. This is not just a judgment on the serpent, it's a judgment on all sinners, on all who rebel against him. And so you take these pieces of evidence together that scripture gives us about Enoch's faith, and we see that his walk with God meant that he approached God by faith trusting in God alone for his life and his hope, knowing God is coming to judge sinners. I'm a sinner and my only hope is that God would count me righteous by faith. It's interesting, this comes not long before the flood. In chapter five, we see Enoch. In chapter six, we see the flood. Before long, it would be readily apparent that God had poured out his wrath on mankind for sin. People didn't think it would come at that time. They thought it was crazy. They thought no one was crazy for building an ark. They didn't think a flood was coming. And still today, there are people who are deceived into thinking that there is not judgment that is coming, that surely God would not punish sin. Surely he will not pour out his wrath towards sin and towards sinners. Surely that day is not coming. People are still blissfully unaware that God will return to judge all men for their sin. And that the God who determines your very days, the day of your life, the day of your birth, the day of your death, might this very day demand from you your life and call you to a given account for what you have done. And at that point, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a judgment and you will also be beyond hope. To hear the words of Enoch, warning, proclaiming of what is to come, but showing us that there is a way out of it. There is a way out of the wrath of God. There is a way out of the judgment of God. There is a way out of the punishment of death and it is to walk with him by faith, trusting in the redeemer whom God will send. For Enoch, it was looking forward to the coming seed who would, who would come. Uh, and for us, it's looking back at Christ Jesus who has come and conquered. And by faith in him, we will not taste the wrath of God, but will be found in him as righteous. You think about Enoch, perhaps his best sermon came through his disappearance. He had his own private rapture. It's taken up. We don't know what it looked like. Of only Enoch and Elijah was it says they were taken without death. And then Elijah, the, the heavens open up and, and a chariot comes down and he's taken up in a whirlwind. We don't know what it was like with Enoch, but he was just taken up to be with God. And Hebrews tells us, and he was not found. Perhaps people went looking for him. They couldn't find him. With, I'm sure it happened with Abel. People are saying, well, you know what? Hey, wait a second. Abel's a little late coming home for dinner. I wonder where he's at. Went looking for him. And before long, you find his body laying in a field and you say, oh, this is what God meant by death. And then Enoch, well, we can't find Enoch. I wonder where he went. So they go searching for him, but they don't find his body. They can't find him anywhere. And we don't know how they heard about it. We don't know how God told them about it, but they find out some way because we've, it's been passed down to us that Enoch was taken up to be with God. So they couldn't find him, but they heard he was taken to be with God. So the message they've been proclaiming about judgment and sin is coming. There must be a way out of it. 
There must be a hope. This cycle of death, this unnatural normality, there must be a way out of it. There must be a hope of life that comes through it. And Enoch is the glaring example to us in this passage that there is. You think about what Jude called him. Jude referred to Enoch as seventh from Adam. Now that has to be clarified because there's actually two Enochs that show up in this text in Genesis four and five. There's an Enoch in the line of Cain and there's another Enoch in the line of Seth. Interestingly, there's one other name repeated in both lines and it's Lamech. So there's a Lamech in both lines and an Enoch in both lines. So, so Jude has to distinguish. I'm talking about the Enoch from Adam, by, you know, by seven from Adam. But what's interesting is, as we saw last week, seven is a number of perfection, of completeness in scripture. So it carries a special significance so that when it's referring to, it could be the totality of it, kind of the full picture of it. So when he says Enoch is the seventh from Adam by way of Seth, it is saying that this is a good picture, a good summary of what this line looks like. Who is seventh from the line of Adam by way of Cain? It was Lamech, who we saw last week. Who is a great picture of what the line of Cain looks like? Rebelling against God and delighting in that rebellion. And so it's really offering us, there's two options. There's the line of Cain marked by seventh from Adam by way of Cain, Lamech, boasting in sin. Or there's the way of Enoch, seventh from Adam by way of Seth, Enoch who walked with God. The options for you and I, friends, are are you going to live in the way of Lamech and celebrate and just kind of take joy in your sin and keep going? Or are you gonna walk the way of Enoch and say, I'm gonna gonna follow the Lord. I'm gonna love the Lord. I'm gonna walk by faith in him. Rather than getting familiar with death, rather than getting lulled to sleep thinking judgment is not coming, we approach God by faith now. Faith that looks like worshiping, knowing, and loving him. Faith that looks like believing that my sin does deserve judgment, but but that Jesus Christ brings forgiveness. Faith that looks like there is a confidence for life after death. There is a hope that we will live forever with God. There is a hope that we will be rescued from the waters of judgment and delivered safely home. Now, sometimes we can think, well, they just, you know, they didn't have all the distractions we have today. It was easy for Enoch to walk then. You think, well, look, look, look today, we've got, We've got a world that seeks to distract us from Christ, if not turn us the opposite way from him. And you know, there's all sorts of things going on. I'm just so busy and my kids have all these events and all these things. So, you know, we just get busy. And maybe when they're a little older, I'll turn by faith. But Enoch had those same things. The culture surrounding Enoch was quite sinful, probably more so than ours. We see the context in chapter six, such that God would send a global flood We see the context in chapter four, such that they're boasting about their sin. Enoch walked in a sinful day. Enoch walked in a day where it looked like uh, believers were outnumbered. And we see here in the text too that he fathered Methuselah, but then he had other sons and daughters too. Enoch had kids. He gets it. Okay, sure, he didn't have TV, but they, they had other ways to entertain themselves. All these excuses we can line up for saying, well, you know, it's just life gets busier. Life gets distracting from walking with the Lord. Enoch had the same things. And yet he said, how can I walk with him in the midst of it? How can I follow him today? In the days the Lord has placed me, in the context the Lord has placed me, with the the people the Lord has placed me with, how can I walk with God here? Because Enoch's story tells us there is a life beyond death picture Enoch's walk just continued him right to heaven. He and God are out for a walk one day 
and they're getting ready to turn and head home, and God says, hey, let's take this way tonight. And they turn this way, and the gates of heaven open up, and Enoch walks right in. Enoch's way of life led him to life eternal with God because he lived by faith. And that's the hope of the Christian because we trust that the rescuer Enoch longed for has come and opened the door to eternal life for all who believe in him, that there is a way out of death and it is to walk with God, to have faith in God, to follow God and know that maybe it doesn't mean we'll escape death entirely. Enoch was taken up, but only Enoch and Elijah could say that. All others, even saints in Christ were killed or died. It doesn't mean we will escape death entirely, but it does mean that death does not have the final word. Death is not the ultimate reality of life. We are spared from the ultimate death, eternal death, because for the believer, death is merely an open door into heaven. We don't glorify death, but we don't cower before it either. Death is no longer power. Death no longer has the power over us. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though he die, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We'll live forever with him. There's a popular Christian writer named Tim Challies. He recently published a phenomenal book. It's one of the most edifying books you will read in quite a while, and yet at the same time, one of the most heartbreaking. It's called Seasons of Sorrow. What it is is a few years back, his 20-year-old son, Nick, while he was away at college, collapsed and died unexpectedly. And this book is the grief of a father over the course of one year after his son's death, processing it, writing about it, writing from the place of heartbreak and hardship and uncertainty and questions and grief, yet with a firm confidence in the goodness of God. It's a beautiful book, and at one point in the book, he reflects on how death was truly powerless to harm his son, Nick. He writes this. Death, did you bring any great harm to Nick when you released his spirit from his body? Surely not, for all you did was deliver him from physical pain and deliver him to spiritual blessings. You liberated him from all strife and strain, from all sorrow and suffering, from all anxiety and uncertainty. You delivered him to the fullest peace and the sweetest comfort. So death, be not proud. Death, did you bring any great harm to Nick when you took him from my side? No, for when you took Nick from my side, you delivered him to the Savior's. You transported him to that place where he can receive his welcome and his reward, where he can see his Savior's face, where he can express his deepest gratitude to the one who healed him and made him whole. So death, be not proud. Death, did you bring any great harm to Nick when you carried him away from this place of toil, away from this place that so constantly strains body, mind, and spirit? No, for he has now been given rest. Rest from all that aggrieves, rest from all that perplexes, rest from all that discourages. He no longer has to strive against sin or labor toward holiness. He no longer faces trials and no longer endures temptations. He no longer sins and is no longer sinned against. He is now fully equipped to perfectly serve the Savior he loves so well. So death, be not proud. Death, did you bring any great harm to Nick when you called him away from his earthly home? No, for you merely called Nick away from this foreign land in which he was only ever a sojourner and took him to that new land where he has long since secured full citizenship. You transported him from this place of faith to that place of sight, from this shadow to that light, from this foretaste to that reality, from an earthly tent to a celestial palace, so death, be not proud. Death, did you bring any great harm to Nick when you pulled him away from his family? 
By no means, for you simply delivered him to the community that is above, to the great company of saints that stands in the presence of Christ to worship him perfectly and unendingly. And there he is joined with the saints and the martyrs, the elders and the angels, to pour out his perfect praise and perfect prayers to his perfect God. So death be not proud. I can't help but think of the words of Paul. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death does not have the final word. Death was defeated by Christ, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. And the story of Enoch is included here amidst people who die to remind us that there is a way to life by believing in the one whom God would send, Jesus the Christ. And so all this leads us to trust in the promised rescuer, the one God promised would come. Because you notice in this passage, there's the familiar refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. But there's another familiar refrain, and it's the birth of a child. Over and over and over again. Talks about a son being born, a child being brought forth as a reminder of what God had promised. That there will come an offspring of Eve who will crush the serpent. There'll come an offspring of Eve who will set all things right. There'll come an offspring of Eve who will save his people and redeem them from their sin. And so this constant theme of death in chapter five is a reminder of the pervasive curse of sin and the constant theme of life and birth is a reminder of the coming rescuer that God will send. And he has come in Christ Jesus. We see in verse 29, that Islamic gives birth to Noah. Well, he doesn't give birth, but he has a son. He gives birth to Noah. He has a prophecy. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Toil, same language in Genesis chapter three, consequence of sin. Islamic saying, okay, this one, Noah, he's gonna give us relief. And in a sense, Noah does through the flood and the recreation narrative we see afterward. But Noah is still a sinner in need of a savior. Noah will bring temporary relief, but not ultimate relief. We still need that. And you trace the lineage all the way down to the person of Jesus Christ, coming from the line of Seth. He is the one who will give us ultimate relief. He is the one who will deliver us from the waters of God's wrath and lead us safely home. See, if Enoch, if his walk with God were based on what he did, maybe it was based on the wealth he had, based on the accomplishments he had, well, that wouldn't really be good news for us because what if we couldn't do the same thing he did? But Enoch's walk with God was on the basis of one thing and one thing alone, his faith. And that option is available to every one of us. To believe in Christ trust him, to walk with him, to follow him, to believe that the rescuer has come, to cherish him, treasure him, and trust him, and know that when you do, yet we, that though we die, we'll live forever with him. So I close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon started an orphanage. He was a, a pastor in London. He started many great ministries, and one of them that was near and dear to his heart was an orphanage that he started and ran. And at one point, there was a boy, a young boy in his orphanage who was dying. And there was nothing that anybody could do about it. And so Spurgeon went to sit with the child. I imagine him 
tenderly taking the boy's hand, talking with him as the boy lay dying in his bed. And Spurgeon said to him, Jesus loves you. He bought you with his precious blood and he knows what is best for you. It seems hard for you to lie here and listen to the shouts of the healthy boys outside at play. But soon Jesus will take you home and then he will tell you the reason and you will be so glad. It's the hope of the Christian that the God who is sovereign over life and death uses all things in our lives to throw us wholly upon Christ as the solid rock for our lives and to make us eternally glad in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and the life that you give us in him. Lord, we see death around us. We see the curse of sin in us. And we know that we need rescue. And we thank you that you have done that in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would walk by faith in you like Enoch, trusting in you, treasuring you, clinging to you for the hope of our lives and the hope of our lives eternal with you. And we ask this in your precious, the name of your precious son and for his glory. Amen.